Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we ask that you be, will be able to understand your passage, that you will give us uh, the Holy Spirit to discern what your word says to us, that I'll be faithful in preaching your word, and that uh, truly we will know you better, so that we can relate to you as you really are. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now, what is God really like? What is God really like? I want you to take a moment to uh, really think about that question, what is God really like? And uh, maybe think of some words that you use or come to mind to describe what God is really like. Uh, and uh, when those appropriate words come into your mind, I want you to write it down in the outline that you have in front of you, in the, uh, in the sheet that you have in front of you. Hopefully you have those with you when you walked in or have a pen with you. Just write down the words which come to you when you think, what is God really like? Okay, now just write down one word, two words, three words. It's, it's, it's important because we're going to come back to it at the end of the sermon. Now, last week we studied uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And as we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 4, we learned that uh, God's people, the Israelites and the Philistines, the enemies, had gathered around this region, right? Uh, next slide. Okay, the, okay next one. Uh, the number three one. Okay, this is the map of Israel. Okay, this is all the 12 tribes. The next slide. Okay, and I expanded it for you. So they had gathered here in Apec. Apec, right, it says, and Ebenezer, and they fought this great battle. And what had happened last week was that we saw that God's people, the Israelites, lost 34,000 people. Uh, their priests had, had died. Okay, two of them in battle, one later. And the Ark of God... Okay, the Ark of God had been captured. And uh, the Ark of God, as we saw, uh, if you go down a bit to the beginning, right, okay, was uh, where the law was kept in that box, where God had actually written with his finger the two stone tablets of all the law, and they were kept in the box. And also, God was supposed to be represented here in between the cherubim. And this had been captured. So last week, we saw the picture from... The, the, the viewpoint or the perspective of God's people. And we saw why this had happened. And why did this happen? This happened because God was judging His people. Remember? God was judging His people because the people were unfaithful. God was judging His people because the priests were wicked. So God had abandoned His people and allowed them to be defeated by the Philistines. Now, this week, we turn the camera angle, the perspective of the viewpoint, Instead of looking at it from God's people's perspective, Israelites' perspective, we now look at it from the Philistine perspective, right? the enemies of God's perspective. And when they looked at the battle, and when they had surveyed the battle scene, they, they, you know, the 34,000 people that they killed, and the arms that they had, in their mind, why do you think, what, what did they think was the reason that they won? They probably thought they won because they were better than the Israelites. You know, you can imagine the title at the Ashdod Straits Times, right? We are the champions, you know, and Israel is a loser. They probably wore the special t-shirts, you know. The Battle of Ebenezer, champions, 1090 BC, right? And then on the radio, they're probably playing the, the Philistine version of We Are the Champions, right? But more importantly, not only did they think that they, the Philistines, were better than the Israelites, they believed that their God was more powerful than the Israelite God because they had with them the ark. Right? And remember from the superstitious, 
thinking that they had in those days, the ark was like an idol, it represented God. And that's why last week when we saw that the ark came into the Israelite camp, the Israelites cheered and the Philistines groaned. They said, oh dear, you know, the ark has come to the camp, a god has come who defeated the Egyptians, woe is us, we will lose. But in the end they won. So here, they defied God's power, the Philistines defied God's power, they went against God's power, and they had won. It was their finest hour. It seemed as if they had defeated God himself. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 5, right? Because in chapter 5, it says there in verse 1, After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod, and then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. So come back again to the map. Okay, this map, I'm going to keep referring to this big map. Okay, next one. See, I made it very big because I realized that people can't see. So the battle was here, in fact, right? And then they, they, they captured the ark. They brought the ark from Aphek to Ashdod. See, Ashdod is one of these coastal cities along the coast, right? Probably got good beaches, whatever. And there, they brought the ark into Dagon's temple. Now, Dagon was like the highest god of the Philistines. He was a god of uh, fertility, of, vegetari- of, of the vegetation and grain. So, they brought the ark in there and uh, it, was a, it was like a religious trophy, a plunder of war, and they put it at the feet or beside Dagon, at its feet, together with all the other religious artifacts that they would have you know, plundered when they defeated other enemies. So, the picture here in verse 1 and 2 is that they, they had control, they, they, they felt they were better than, uh, than God and they had captured his religious trophy. But in verse 3, when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face before the ark of the Lord. Well, you know, there was great celebration when the ark was brought in, great fanfare, Right? And the ark was brought in, placed in the temple beside Dagon together with the other religious artifacts. And what happens the next day? They walk in, the religious curator or maybe the cleaner comes in early in the morning. And there was Dagon, fallen on his face before the ark. Now what had happened? What did the Philistines think happened? Maybe they thought that it was, maybe it was an accident. You know these tourists? They're really careless. You know, maybe someone who was holding a tiger beer in his hand leaned against it, and, the, and Dagon fell down in front of the ark. So they put the ark back up, uh, sorry, they put the Dagon back up in front of the ark. But you can see that already in the passage, there's a hint, right, there's a hint of why this is happening, happening because it says there at the end of verse 3, that the Dagon fell on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And whenever you see those Four words, L-O-R-D, in capital letters, always means Yahweh, the covenant name of God that God gave to His people. So what the, uh, this is actually telling us is, God is not just one of the many gods that uh, the Philistines had conquered. God was the God. He was Yahweh. And that's why Dagon was fallen on his face before the ark. But obviously the Philistines wouldn't know this, right? So the next day, after they put Dagon back on his feet, in verse 4, but the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of, God, of the Lord, his head 
and hands had been broken off were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. And that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod stepped on the threshold. So the next day, the cleaner comes again, or the religious uh, curator or whatever comes in, and what happened again? There was Dagon and he was fallen flat on his face before the ark again. But this time, he had been dismembered and decapitated. And not only that, his hands and his head were not like beside the body, it was like somewhere further away where the threshold was. The threshold was like the doorway. Okay, so imagine you know, Dagon's here and he's fallen down, but where his head and his hand? It's over there at uh, the entrance where the car park is. Okay? So obviously, the Philistines know that, hey, something really weird is happening here, right? Uh, how did his hands end up over there when his body is here? Well, it must have been because God was doing it, isn't it? And like a, a pastor I heard, on a, a one, com- uh, one co- a pastor said, his, his, his corny joke was, do you know what the problem with Dagon was? He was here today, but he was gone tomorrow. Okay, so what was God teaching? God was teaching that he was a triumphant God. He wasn't just one of the many gods of the region. He was Yahweh. That's why it keeps repeating that the Ark of the Lord, right? The Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Lord. Dagon fell down before the Ark of the Lord. And what God was saying to the Philistines was, don't mistake my power. Just because you defeated my people doesn't mean that I'm weak or I'm a, a, a small god, you know, small g-god. Don't think you've defeated me. I'm not like Dagon, where you have to super glue him back together, right? I'm the powerful God. I'm Yahweh. And verse 5 teaches us why we should not make the mistake that many people make when they read the Bible and say, oh, this is all just a legend, right? This is all just a story that somebody made up. Because in verse 5, it says that to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor others who entered the temple at Dagon step on the threshold. That means that when... One Samuel was written, Dagon's temple was still there and Dagon was still standing there, the super glue. But the priests don't step on the doorway, they, they avoid the area where his hands and his head were. So this, this is a real story. Uh, it shows that it is dangerous to insult or defy Yahweh. It's a terrible thing. And if this wasn't terrible enough, God, in verse 6, his, his hand was heavy, says there, upon the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. And he brought devastation upon them and afflicted them with tumors. Now, it's a terrible thing of what happened in, in, in the temple of Dagon, but it was even worse what was happening outside among the general population. Right? No, not only could Dagon not stand, but Dagon couldn't protect his people. And it says here, the Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. Now, uh, this word heavy in verse 6 is actually the word in Hebrew called kabod. Right? If you look in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 21, uh, remember Pinehas's daughter, uh, sorry, Pinehas's wife, Eli's daughter-in-law, in verse 21, she named her boy Ichabod, saying the glory is departed from Israel. Well, here, the word heavy is the word kabod. It's the same word as glory. So what it's actually saying here, heavy and glory are the same word. The, the, the Lord's hand was heavy, was glorious. Right? He showed His glory by being heavy on the people. And what it means is that God, Yahweh, is not a light God. 
He's a heavy God. He's got substance. He's got weight. He's got uh, presence. And that's why you don't mess with this God, this heavy God, because He shows His glory by bringing His heavy hand on the people. And He shows that by bringing devastation and tumors. Now, what are these tumors? Now, whenever we think of tumors today, we think of cancer, right? You know, tumor somewhere inside. But uh, the tumors that they're probably talking about here, many people say is like, uh, the, like the bubonic plague of the olden days, which was spread by rats. And that's why later in the story, it talks about the rats and the plague and the tumors, because they're all related, right? So the tumors are not cancer tumors, but like bubonic plague tumors, which sort of swell you outside, where your lymph nodes are and everything, right? But we don't really know uh, what, it, you know, what the, 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 the secondary causes are because the Bible is not really interested in that. It knows the real cause of the tumors is, is God, isn't it? God's hand was heavy upon them and that's why they had these tumors and people were dying. So what is the answer that the Philistines had to this heavy God who toppled down uh, Dagon and made Dagon bow before his ark? and who killed people by giving them this plague of tumors. Well, they played the game of musical cities. Okay? They moved the ark around, a bit like, you know, nowadays we don't want the old folks home or the foreign workers' dormitory in our HGB estate, so we move it around in different places, right? So that's the same thing that happens here. So, from Ashdod, the people said, oh, you know, we don't want, we don't want to have the ark here anymore. So they wrote to this place called Gath. See, you know, this Gath is down here. And they probably said, oh, you know, we have this wonderful gift for you, you know, in our museum, we have this wonderful artifact. Why don't we have a museum exchange, right? And we give you the ark instead. So we went to Gath, and the same thing happened there, right? Devastation, death, tumors. So the people of Gath, Gath said the same thing, right? Hey, let's have a museum exchange. Let's exchange this ark that we have with something that you have, you know, a Picasso or something. And the people of Gath, they sent it to Akron. And again... The same thing happened. And that's why in verse 11, by the time it went through uh, its tour of three cities, right, it said all the rulers, right, they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy, very heavy upon it. Now, what do we learn from this section? Just this section, this is short section from uh, history. Okay, we know it's not a legend, we know it's history, but well, what do we learn from it? I think we learn that God is a very heavy God, isn't it? He's not fat, but He is heavy, He's got presence, He's important. And you cannot mock and defy and laugh at this God. Because that's what the Philistines did, right? They thought, okay, we won, we are better. You know, we are the champions. By the end, they were crying in their beer, right? In their tiger beer. They defied God and they, think they, they thought they got away with it, but actually, God was the one who they had to respect. They, they thought that they had God in their hands, but actually God had them in His hands. Now, I think it's a very common game that we play, isn't it? We think that, or the world thinks, and we are tempted to think this way, that we can defy God and get away with it. I always think about this relative of mine in Malaysia. Um, you know, in Malaysia, they have really good food. And the best food is always found in those um, roadside stalls or the chicha places, 
you know, which are kind of dirty and next to the drain and everything, and you know, you sit there. And they always have um, these, uh, like, these toilet paper in these rolls where you sort of take it out and you just tear it, right? You know those sort of things? Yeah, okay, only the connoisseurs know these things. All right. Anyway, I was sitting there with my relatives, and I told my relative, you know, my, I don't know what he did, like, he was doing something, he threw something on the ground, and I said, hey, that's littering, you know? Then he, then he, then he said, littering? Then he took the, the box with the toilet paper, and he started ripping it, throwing it, paper everywhere. And there, I mean, there's a crowd, crowd restaurant. He said, does anybody care? Right, I'm throwing paper everywhere, does anybody care? See any police catching me? No one's even looking at me. He says, you can throw paper everywhere in Malaysia. Nobody cares. Uh, I'm not saying this is a bad thing about Malaysia. I mean, I'm just saying that's what he did, right? And I'm sort of thinking, you know, it's the same thing that we do with God, isn't it? We, we sort of, we are tempted where we can defy God and do what we want and think, well, God's not here. No, nothing's happening. Look, no one struck me down with lightning. Where's the big hammer that comes down from heaven? Nothing happened to me. We laugh at God. In fact, when people see you taking God seriously, they say that it's hard to take you seriously. right? But what we see in this passage is that God will not be defied and mocked. In the long run, He will, he will actually judge you for it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, which is up here, all right, uh, this is what it warns. Right? First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires. Scoffers are like people who defy God, right? They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as if, it ha- sorry, as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Obviously the scoffers and those who defy God. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. So, the lesson for us is, and the lesson for you and me is, is that us? Do we defy God in our lives? Do we, do we feel that we can defy God and get away with it? That somehow we can, you know, we can get past God? Well, this passage tells us that we cannot. You cannot defy God. Because in the long run, there will be an accounting, isn't it? And that's exactly what the Philistines recognized. Because it says there in chapter 6, that after seven months, they had enough, right? They threw in the towel. Verse 1 of chapter 6, When the ark of the Lord had been in the Philistine territory for seven months, the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, what shall, sorry, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us. Um, tell us how we should send it back to its place. And they answered, If you return the ark of God, sorry, ark of the God of Israel, do not send it away empty, but by all means send a guilt offering to him. Then you will be healed, and you will know why his hand has not been lifted from you. The Philistines asked, What guilt offering should we send to him? And they replied, Five gold tumors and five gold rats, according to the number of Philistine rulers, because the same plague has struck both you and your rulers. Make models of the tumors and of the rats that are destroying your country and pay honor to Israel's God. Perhaps he will lift his hand from you and your gods and your land. Now, you see here that after seven months, the priest said, 
okay, let's, let's send it back. But what do we need to do when we send it back? We can't just sort of send it back to Israel empty-handed. They need to give a guilt offering. Now, what is the guilt offering? Now, uh, I'm not sure what the Philistine diviners or priests had in mind. But in the, in the Old Testament, the guilt offering was where you offended God. You offended God because you didn't treat Him in a holy way. You didn't give Him honor. You didn't give Him respect. Now Leviticus here, which is up here, uh, Leviticus chapter 5, uh, the Israelite uh, understanding of guilt offering as instructed by God was this. The Lord said to Moses, when a person commits a violation and sins unintentionally, in regard to any of the Lord's holy things, he is to bring to the Lord as a penalty a ram from the flock, one without defect, and of the proper value in silver according to the sanctuary shekel. It is a guilt offering. He must make restitution for what he has failed to do in regard to the holy things. Add a fifth of the value to that and give it all to the priest who will make atonement for him with the ram as a guilt offering and he will be forgiven. You see what they recognized, the Philistines recognized that they had, they had not treated God's holy thing, the ark. They had not treated God with the respect and honor that was due to him. Remember, God is a heavy God. He deserves honor for who he is, for what he is. And they said that you needed five gold tumors and five gold rats because it, res- it represented a response of the whole of the people, the whole of the, rep- uh, uh, of the Philistine nation. So if you look up here again the map, right? Remember the five cities of Philistines: the Ashdod, Ekron, Gath, Ashkelon, and Gaza. This whole area. So what basically the Philistine people did as a nation, they were saying sorry to God because they had defied Him and done the wrong thing. But they were not going to make it easy for God because they were going to prepare a test for God where they loaded all the odds. Uh, on themselves. So they, first of all, they, they were going to send the ark back, but they chose some cows who had never been yoked. Uh, a yoke is like this, right? Next slide. A yoke is where you put uh, something on the back of the cow when you plow the field, right? Okay? Uh, in the days before motorized tractors and everything. But when you don't, when the cow has not been yoked, apparently, this will understand, they are like... Um, they are very unruly and they don't pull together. They're always pulling in different directions and it's very hard for them to go straight. It's like an L-plate driver, you know? You know, they don't drive very straight. So you put two of them together, even worse, right? But not only were they uh, L-plate cows, right? But these cows had just calved, they had just given birth. That means like they had these babies who were still suckling to them. You know, like these cows, they were still breastfeeding. The cows, but they took the cows away, the calves away, and penned them away. So, what do you think would happen if uh, you put these two cows who had never been calved before and taken the babies away and penned them somewhere else? What would happen? What would naturally happen? The cows would want to go back to the babies. That's the natural instinct. They were mothers, the babies had been taken away, they want to go back to the babies. Now, they put the ark on the, the, uh, the cart then, and said, okay, let's see what happens. Will the natural thing happen? Will the ark go back to where the babies were kept somewhere else? Or would they go far away to the Israelite city? Well, 
you see here in the map, they were in Gath, the last place, also Ekron, the last place, right? And they had to go to Israelite territory in Beth Shemesh. Now, that's a long way, isn't it? Even from this map, you can tell. The logical thing would be for the cows to not move. They would stay where the babies were. But what happened instead? Well, look at verse 10. Verse 10. So they did this. They took the two such cows and hitched them to the cart and penned up their cows. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart and along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shamesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They did not turn to the right or to the left, and the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now, it's a bit like uh, the uh, question about whether something happened by accident or was it intelligent design. Like, it's like, you know, the question that people are saying, you know, did life come about because God, through intelligent design, made it happen, or did it come about because it was just a coincidence? Well, this is the same question, right? The question that the Philistines are asking, did all these plagues and the tumors and Dagon falling on his feet, was it all an accident? Or did God bring it about? And, 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 this, and this time they actually have a test for it. And the test actually showed that it was intelligent design. God was the one who made it happen because they went in a straight line to Beth Shemesh. And not only that, uh, it says that they were lowing, right? I, I, they were mooing. Okay? Uh, they were mooing because apparently they were, they were being dragged along by some unnatural force. Because you know when you drag cows, apparently they, they low or they moo. And they went all the way to Beth Shemesh. Now, what is the lesson here that God wanted to teach the Philistines that we can learn? Well, I think the important thing that we are supposed to learn was God was the one who brought all these things and uh, overcame the Philistines. See, God didn't need Israel to have its uh, Israeli special forces come and rescue the ark. Right? He didn't need his uh, commandos. He, God did it himself. And I think it shows how powerful God is. Right? God is so different from Dagon. Right? Yahweh is a God who actually makes things happen because he controls everything that happens in his world. And I think we may need to remember that, right? Uh, in our time, we sort of think, okay, God is just slightly more powerful than we are. No, God is like almighty. Uh, we serve God. We obey God. Uh, we allow ourselves to be part of God's plan. But God doesn't need us. God is almighty. God can make things happen without us. But it is, it is actually a privilege. Of, it's part of His grace that He actually uses us in His plan. Now, I was reading this book uh, that was unfortunately given to me by a Presbyterian person, but I didn't quite agree with it. And, uh, and, and uh, the, book of this, the name of this book is God's Dream Team. And this is what this book is about. Uh, he says, um, Too often we perceive man's will as weak, yet it is strong enough that God himself will not violate it. Only God's refusal to violate man's will and man's resistant nature leave Jesus' prayer unanswered. God's dream is in our, in our hands. Let, let's answer his call to unity and make his dream come true. Okay, let me, let me read some more. 
says, um, God's dream, God dreams of unity, but his difficulty and chief obstacle is the will of man. His dream cannot be accomplished and his will cannot be, be done until we submit our will to him. He will only do what we allow him to do. But is that the picture that we see here in this uh, passage? No, isn't it? God is not limited by man. God is not limited by will. God achieves things and overcomes things regardless of what our will is because He is God. So we must never think that, you know, God only is able to do things because of me. Right? God is a heavy God. The glory never resides in me or us or mankind but what God does. Again, I've seen this happen many times and I've been to separate churches and one church, uh, the pastor came up and he said, you know, our church has really grown, it's really big now. He says, you know, how do we get this way? And he, he basically said, we got this way because I, right, I trained to become a pastor of a big church and therefore we're a big church now. Uh, there are other times where I've been to other churches where there have been anniversaries. You know, churches have lots of anniversaries, some churches, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, all that sort of stuff. And people were saying, you know, Oh, you know, look at our church, it's so big. Look at, look at how good we are. Look at all these things. Look at all the things that we achieved. All the things that we did. But you see, God is a big, heavy God. And He is the one who achieves things, not us. The glory goes to God, not to us. God is at work, not us. Anyway, the story keeps going on. And uh, the ark finds its way back to Israel. And it ends up in the city, as we saw up there, of Beshamesh. And specifically, it ends up uh, stopping at this place called, uh, uh, in verse 18, right, of chapter 6. Uh, it ends up on the large rock uh, on which they set the ark of the Lord as a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, of Beshamesh. So the ark ends up in this big rock on this field of Joshua and Beshamesh. The Israelites took, the, took down the ark. They, uh, they took down the, uh, the gold pieces. They chopped up the cart. And the poor cows, right? First of all, they're separated from their cows. They have to walk so far. Oh, and they get there, what happens to them? Do they have a nice rest and some water? No. They're cut up and sacrificed. Okay. Well, end of story for them. But it was a wonderful day for Israel, right? Because they got the ark back. And again, in verse 18... When the, the writer was writing, uh, verse 6, uh, it was properly known that, okay, if you wanted to know whether this story was really real, you go to Beshamesh, you go to this field, you find that big rock. There was where the ark was. Now, it's a bit like our time today, isn't it? Uh, if you go to Kranji, I suppose, you, you can probably see a, a marker. Okay, this is where you know, the Japanese landed, where they fought. Or you go to Botanical Gardens, okay, you see this big tree? It was planted by someone in some colonial day or something. Or you go to someone's house, okay, San Yat-sen was here before. And that's the same thing, isn't it? Where in Israel, they remembered the great day with the ark returned back to Israel. But was it a great tourist attraction? Did people line up and pay their money to see this rock? No, isn't it? Because it was actually a, a great rejoicing when the ark came back, but it wasn't at the end of the day. Because in verse 19... The God struck down, sorry, God struck down some of the men of Beshamesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. 
The people mourned because of the heavy blow God had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? Now what exactly happened here? If you look at uh, this verse, it says there, that in verse 18, 19, that they had looked into the ark in the NIV. right? So some people say maybe they touched the ark, you know. Let's have a look and see what's inside. Okay? Now, they knew that was wrong because this was a, a Levitical city. That only the Levites were allowed to touch the ark. They were like the hereditary priests. Nobody else was allowed to touch the ark. But in some other translations, like the uh, ESV, if you're using the ESV translation, they, they didn't look into the ark, they looked on the ark, they looked upon the ark. So what, what were they doing so wrong? It's, it's looking very bad. You know, was it a staring incident with the ark? No, right? See, the problem was they had a very presumptuous attitude to the ark. They had a very presumptuous attitude to the things of God. They weren't treating it with the respect and holiness it required. See, last, last week in uh, chapter 4, we saw that they, they treated the ark like a lucky charm. You know, a bit like, you know, we, you know, many people in their cars, they have those lucky charms on their dashboard or hanging from their uh, rear view mirror. Right? So they were treating uh, the ark like those furry dice they were hanging down from the, the, their, their rearview mirror, right? And they learned that God wouldn't be treated like this. And this time, when the ark comes back, instead of treating it like a lucky charm, they're treating it like a, a curiosity, a, a tourist attraction. You know, maybe they took out their iPads, or their iPhones, and they were taking photographs of me leaning and making funny pictures in front of the ark. They weren't treating it with respect. I remember when I was very young, um, I went to... Uh, I can't remember, I can hardly remember, I only see pictures of it, right? I went to England or something on a tour with my parents. And there was an ancient castle. Uh, and, and this story is told repeatedly in my, my family. And one of my relatives had finished drinking a can of Coca-Cola as we were walking around this ancient castle. And in this ancient castle, there were no dustbins. And after a while, my relative got sick of carrying this can of, empty can of Coca-Cola with, with, beside him. This person, I, I won't tell you the the person. I don't give. So anyway, after a while, this person said, "What am I going to do with this can of Coca? I'm sick of carrying this can of Coca Cola. What am I going to do it?" So we're walking through this castle thing, and then it just so happens there's a hole there. I don't know what the hole was there for, where you know it was like probably hundreds of years or old, years old hole, and um, in one of the parts of rooms of the building. Oh, okay, I can put my Coca Cola can in there. All right, so he put it in there. And I think the Coca-Cola can just sort of went a few inches down, right? Maybe it's still there today. Who knows? But my, I remember my other relatives said, that's terrible, you know, you're disrespecting the castle, right? I mean, this is an ancient castle, a historical site. And you just put your, you littered and put your Coca-Cola can in this hole that, I mean, who knows what it's for, isn't it, right? And that's what they were doing to the ark, isn't it? They were disrespecting the ark. We don't know exactly what they were doing, but they were looking upon it and treating it in a casual way, in a, in a touristy way. And it's really tragic because at the end of the chapter, you notice the question that God's people ask is exactly the same question that the Philistines ask, the enemies of God. They ask, who can stand in the presence of the, of, this, of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? See, instead of saying, how have we treated God 
wrongly in our relationship. They say, how can we get rid of God? How can we get rid of the ark? And they send the ark away. So what are we to learn from this passage? The passage is, we must not treat God in a way which is inappropriate. We cannot defy God, and we cannot treat God in a casual way, like, you know, He's our buddy. Uh, I was reading this book called The Effective Pastor, and, and uh, it's just so interesting that I was reading it just as, as I was preparing the sermon, because he looks at this word, kabod, right? The word heavy, or glory. And he says, what is this glory of God that is our aim and His? The Old Testament word translated glory, kabod, which is heavy, has this underlying thought, the idea of weight or weightiness and hence of value and worth. Since God is his, is, is, his importance carries weight, He evokes respect. It is not only that He exists, just think about Him, about His glorious splendor, His majesty, His wisdom, His goodness, His love, His power. He is he's everywhere yet without position, first and foremost, recent, without time and beyond time, pure, good, righteous, without qualification and limit. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, glory, and truth. He alone is self-existent. He knows everything. This is the glory that he, in, he has in Himself. It is only right and proper that it is our irresistible imperative of our existence to, to honor and to love Him. Our chief purpose is to accord Him and gain for Him the homage, esteem, and service that He deserves as King and Redeemer. Okay, very deep, right? But basically what it's saying is that because God is a very heavy God, we must give Him His glory as God, His power. Now, if you're not a believer, you may be tempted like the Philistines to defy God. You think, you know, uh, the church is weak, Christians are hypocritical, and not very impressive. You know, many of them are shallow in their faith. So you think, okay, God is like that. God is a weak God, just like His people are weak. But how wrong it is, isn't it? Because God is a powerful God. And you cannot defy God. You cannot defy God like the Philistines did. In Acts chapter 17, right? It says the same idea of the power of God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And He does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Because He Himself gives all men life and breath, and everything else. From one man He made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and He determined the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek Him, and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets said, have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. And He has set a day where He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Him from the dead. See, God has moved on from that time in, Philist in Philistine, isn't it? That He has shown that He has risen, made Jesus rise from the dead, and that's actually proof that those who defy Him will actually be judged. That if you do not recognize that He has made you, He sustains you, He determines your life, when Jesus comes again, He will judge you for defying Him. So there's no point in living a life of defiance against God, just as the, the Philistines recognize. Give God honor and glory for the heaviness He has. Now, if you're a Christian, 
I wonder what words you wrote about God in your introduction. Can you look at those words that you wrote down in the introduction about God? I wonder, are those the words that you would find based on chapter 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel? Do the words glorious, heavy, awesome, fearful, scary, weighty come into it? Because God is that sort of God, isn't it? He's, he's, he's a weighty, powerful God who deserves our honor and service and obedience. Now, I know a very famous Christian song, where, which I think is second only to Amazing Grace, where people sing all the time, in uh, funerals especially, and the song is, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But sometimes we take it too far, right? We think Jesus is like our buddy. Uh, Jesus is like my pal. You know, Jesus, give me a high five, okay? But Jesus is not like that. God is not like that. Yes, Jesus is our friend, but He's not a friend as in He's our equal. Right? He is God. He is powerful. He is mighty. He is supreme. He's all, you know, He's incomparable. So I think the lesson for us is we cannot treat God in a casual way. You know, He's not like, you know, someone we just sort of walk in when we feel like it too and just do things when we feel like it. No, God is the creator and sustainer God. He is our maker. He's our redeemer. He's our Lord. So let's learn from the lessons that the Philistines and God's people learned. I don't know what, 3,000 years ago? And really, really see who God is so that we will give Him the honor because He's a heavy God. He's a God of substance and weight. And we cannot defy Him and we cannot be casual with Him. We must give Him His honor. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, truly we want to pray that through your word, we will learn the lessons that the Philistines and the Israelites learned all those thousands of years ago, that you are a heavy God. You are a God of glory. You're a God of substance and importance. And you will not tolerate people who defy you or think that they are greater above you or equal to you. Uh, Dear Father, you will not tolerate people who treat you with casualness people who treat you with uh, uh, flippancy. Dear Father, may we not be like that. May we treat you with trembling hearts, with fear and reverence. For you are such a powerful, holy God. And as we come into your presence through the death of Jesus, help us see the great honor and privilege it is that we can actually meet with you this way without being struck down. And that we may be always faithful before you and to recognize your great power in everything. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.